0: Hello, and welcome to Title Nerds, presented by the law firm of Riker Danzig. Each episode features one or more of Riker Danzig's thought leaders in the title insurance law space, discussing current legal trends and issues of significance. Before we begin, we wish to note that nothing shared on today's podcast should be considered legal advice in any particular matter. Now, I'm pleased to introduce Michael O'Donnell, Riker Danzig's co-managing partner, and partner Bethany Abley to kick off our podcast.
1: Hello, title nerds, and anyone else who might be listening to this podcast who does not yet consider themselves title nerds, but maybe by the end. My name is Bethany Abley, and I am moderating this title nerds podcast with Mike O'Donnell, co-managing partner of Riker Danzig. Welcome to our fourth episode of the Title Nerds podcast. Today, we have a few of our partners from the real estate group joining us to talk about title insurance issues that they encounter in their practice. And we also have, as we always do, a member of our team who will be going over a current case with you. Welcome, everybody. First, let me introduce Josh Greenfield and Jim Maggio of our real estate group. Welcome, Josh. Welcome, Jim.
2: Thank you, Bethany.
3: Thanks for having us.
1: And if you guys could just take a minute to let our listeners know a little bit about your practice, what you guys do.
3: Sure. My name is Jim Maggio. I'm a partner in the real estate group, as Bethany said. The real estate group at Riker Danzig, like many real estate groups, we do a little bit of everything that touches upon the dirt, if you will. We do a lot of commercial transactions, both representing sellers and purchasers of all different types of real estate, whether it be office, space, industrial, retail, anything really. We also do a lot of leasing, again, representing both landlords and tenants in a variety of spaces, office, industrial, retail, and we do some residential development work as well, but we don't really do a lot of residential real estate. We're a commercial real estate group. For the most part, The majority of my practice is centered on the transactional side, representing sellers and purchasers. And these days, I would say the industrial space is probably taking up most of my time.
2: Josh? Yeah, I'll just second what Jim said. We do anything touching dirt, buying, selling, lending, borrowing, leasing, constructing, development. I tend to focus a little more on leasing maybe than Jim does. And just the second, I think the, the industrial market here in the New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania area is probably as hot as any market in the country and brings it with some unique opportunities and challenges.
1: Great. Thanks, guys. And again, thanks for being here today. I Absolutely. guess the first question that we wanted to ask you guys about, how exactly do you work with the title insurance underwriters in what you do, in your, especially your larger commercial transactions? Can you kind of go through that process for us a little bit?
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, Josh, I'll start off if you don't mind. It really begins at the contract stage. First of all, when you're negotiating a contract these days, you, you almost always have to name the title insurer if you're representing the buyer. And back in the old days, it was the attorneys. We would typically pick who we wanted to use because the clients often turn to us for that advice or that input. I'll say that's changed quite a bit in the last, you know, 10-15 years or so, a lot of relationships have been formed directly with a lot of our institutional clients who have their go-to title person, but during the contract stage we're including a title company or a title agency as the title insurer and more than likely the escrow agent who will handle the actual closing at the end of the transaction. And then really We Shortly after the contract is signed, if you're representing the buyer, you're ordering a title commitment. The title review period in a contract tends to be up front. Within the first 30, 60 days, there's some overlap with the due diligence period. So there's a lot of activity up front, working with the title company, ordering a title commitment, reviewing it, raising objections, dealing with your counterparty. If you are the purchaser or if you're the seller, receiving those objections and responding to how you're going to deal with them, interacting with the title company as to their view of whatever those objections might be and what they what they can do for you. So there's a lot of activity in that beginning because that's when you're kind of locking in title as it may appear at the end of the transaction. Then throughout the contract period, depending on how long it is. And our contracts range from anywhere between 30 and 60 days in a really fast track deal to two, three years even, if it's a development deal where the buyer has to get approvals. Throughout that period, you're periodically touching base with the title company, the underwriters, things may come up in the interim that you have to confront, but there's usually a quieter period in that middle. And then of course, as you approach closing, a lot of activity, things pick up as you're ordering a title pro forma, dealing with the logistics of closing. As I said earlier, these days, title companies are almost always the title closers on the larger commercial deals. You know, Back in the day when we used to have table closings, the attorneys would do a lot of that. We would do the closing statement. Everybody would come and sit around the table. You know, Nowadays, it's all, I'd say 90% of our transactions close in escrow meaning the parties send in all of their documents to the title company. The title company prepares a closing statement and, and actually closes a transaction. So there's an ebb and flow to it, but we are in contact in the beginning,
2: middle, and end. I think I'll date Jim a little bit because from the time that I started, it was more often title company that I was very rare to have an attorney-led closing. But when I started, and I, I think it's probably even more than 90%, I, I can't remember the last time I did a sit-down table closing the title agents are really indispensable uh, serving as the escrow agent for closing. And that's actually a part where they can really add some value because when you've got somebody who's kind of on top of it and really helping to actively drive the closing, it really helps us out and makes the closing go a lot smoother as opposed to somebody who's kind of more reactive and only kind of more perfunctory thinking about the closing.
4: This is Michael Donald for those listening. Jim, the title commitment, I think we all know that Schedule B includes the exceptions that are put into the coverage. How do you as a closing attorney address those exceptions, and are there specific exceptions that you try to get out or some that you just know you got to live with? Can you take us through sort of your view of that and what you do when you see the exceptions?
3: Sure, absolutely. So part and parcel with the title commitment is a survey. My personal approach to reviewing title is, unless I have a survey, it's not very meaningful to review documents because oftentimes, once you get a survey, depending on how old some of the documents are on title, they may no longer apply to the property you're buying because maybe that property has been subdivided more than once over the years. And what was once affecting a mother lot, as we call it, no longer affects the parcel your client is purchasing. But once you get those title exceptions and you have your survey and you see, and I'm a visual person and I think a lot of real estate attorneys are, we like to see where the surveyor plots these exceptions because oftentimes they're easements. And, you know, if you have a client buying a vacant piece of property, what you don't want to necessarily see is that there's an old easement that runs down the middle of the property that is going to interfere with where your client plans to build a building. And that happens more often than not. And so then you have to look and see, well, what kind of an easement is it? Is it something that could be relocated? Maybe it's a utility easement and the client's gonna be approaching the electric company or the gas company anyway for their development and it could be easily moved. Or is it an access easement that the neighbor absolutely positively needs to get from their land to the public road? But in general, when I review a commitment and the Schedule B exceptions, I'm trying to minimize those. I'm trying to see what can be eliminated. And there's a number of reasons and ways an exception can be eliminated. As I just said, it, it may be an exception that no longer affects the property you're buying. And the surveyor should note that. And typically the title company underwriter will agree to omit that from the commitment. It may be that the document in question by its own wording, expired years before, in which case you can often get the title company to omit the exception. But generally speaking, you're trying to, we call it scrubbing title or cleaning up title. We want to try to minimize the number of documents, which means really the number of reasons why a title company might accept coverage for our client, the insured. And then that's where I was talking in the beginning about our communications with the title company and the counterparty. We'll raise objections in a letter, typically in the contract phase. And sometimes it's things for the title company to deal with. Sometimes it's things for the seller to deal with, but it's a process. And again, our goal is to really try to eliminate ones
2: that don't apply or that are going to give us problems as best we can. And I would just add sometimes. There's ones you can't eliminate, but it is going to give you a problem. And in those situations, that's where we we try to work with the title companies and see what kind of affirmative coverage we can come up with. As a quick example, I had a client who was doing a large-scale industrial development in Central Jersey. I won't use any names or locations, but going across what was going to become the main access route was an old railroad easement. And the railroad wasn't there, and there were buildings built on either side of where that easement was, kind of sandwiching where our access is going to be. But it was still there and still on title. And the railroad company, if anybody deals with railroad companies, and some of them of our clients are not so easy to deal with as far as getting stuff like that removed. So before we went and delved into what's going to be a nine-figure development. We had to talk to the title company and say, we get, you can't remove this, but we need to make sure that it's never going to interfere with our access. And we we're able to come up and get the title company and the underwriter comfortable with what we could do to get some affirmative coverage there.
4: Hey Josh, just to follow up, you said affirmative coverage. Can you tell us what that means? And that tie into the term that you hear often, insure over. Can you explain that a little bit more for the listeners?
2: Yeah. Insure over, they're related topics, but somewhat different. I think when you insure over something, it means the title company is omitting it, in my experience, even though maybe they're not, it's still on title. Insuring over something means it's still an exception, but the title company is granting a limited endorsement that insure certain things. And they can get creative in kind of wording that endorsement and the exact wording.
3: If I could just add to that, I mean, uh, sometimes it's, it's really about what the impact if you will or of that exception on title that they're not willing to omit it but they might say listen we will insure you against forced removal meaning if there is let's use my example of that easement that's running down the property it might be an easement as i mentioned earlier that's 100 years old that ran to a predecessor in title of a neighboring property that no one can locate. We see this all the time on farmland. Farmer Smith was granted rights to come onto the property to pull water from the well located by the big tree near the dirt road, okay? Well, nobody knows where Farmer Brown is anymore and there's no more well and the tree is now turned into paper and pencils and nobody can really make that easement go away. But the title company, you know, they're not willing to just omit it, but they're pretty comfortable at that, in that example, that, well, the odds of the great, great grandchildren of Farmer Brown, you know, knocking on your door and saying, hey, where's our well, it's pretty small. So they're willing to provide you insurance if a court were to order you to rip down your multi, multi-million dollar warehouse that you just put up because the great-grandchildren of Farmer Brown won their lawsuit. And that's an example of the kind of affirmative coverage that we get sometimes and can live with. We don't like insuring over easements. I should say that, exception documents. As When we represent buyers, we don't like it because the thing is still there, and it's just, eh, we don't like it. But there are examples of where we'll live with it, as will the insurance company.
1: And when those great-great-grandchildren of Farmer Brown come out of the woodwork, that's when my phone rings or Mike's phone rings. Yes. And we get the phone call saying, Hey, there's some litigation over here. You've got to fight these great great grandchildren of Farmer Brown. And, That's right. Uh, and Mike and I can tell you some stories where we've had similar yes, situations. Yes,
3: I'm sure. Yeah. Where
1: we've had long lost grandchildren come out of the woodwork.
2: Farmer Brown's grandkids are tough, let me tell you. We've got a large developer client and who developed a large mixed use development in the neighboring borough. and the Smith family has fishing rights over a creek. Nobody knows where the creek is. It's not there, but at some point if those Smiths want to show up from a hundred years ago and start casting their rods, they've all got a problem. <laughs> Would't want to eat those fish?
1: <laughs> <laughs> a few minutes ago, one of you mentioned endorsements, and Mike and I were just wondering about whether or not you have any specific Alta endorsements that you recommend to your Lender clients or commercial property owner clients, or if it really is a case-by-case basis. um, Are there any that are always your kind of go-to endorsements that you always recommend to clients?
3: Yeah, there are certain, I'll call them more run-of-the-mill endorsements that you almost always ask for. The access is access and entry is a huge one. Easy to get if your property is on a public road, a little more challenging if it's not, but you want to make sure. If God forbid your client loses access to a public road, you've got insurance for it. Survey endorsements, making sure they'll ensure the survey subject to exceptions from what they see on that survey, such as hopefully it's just minimal encroachments, if any, that can be easily rectified like a picket fence or a curb cut. If it's a single tax parcel or a multiple tax parcel, we like to get an endorsement for that. Also, if it's multiple parcels, a contiguity endorsement, which is basically an endorsement that ensures against any gaps or gores between the property. And then the new one of the ones that you know, now we're seeing all the time is policy authentication, which is a creature of the fact that so many documents these days are signed electronically. It's now become pretty much pro forma to ask for an endorsement protecting you against someone I guess, arguing that that electronic signature was not theirs. Those are the basic ones on the owner's side. On the lender side, lenders can get a lot more coverage, as a lot of people know on this call, I'm sure, than owners can. You know, so there's a few others that, depending on the type of loan, so if it's a variable rate loan, there's a variable rate mortgage endorsement that are, that's frequently sought, an environmental protection lien endorsement, Utility access is an identified risk coverage endorsement. So if there's specific risks that have been identified during the title review process, again, lenders can get a lot more coverage than owners can, because quite honestly, the risk of a lender being found liable for some title defect created by the property owner is lower. So it's a little bit less of a risk for the insurer. And minerals, you know, if there's any minerals under the property and someone comes along and has some rights to extract them, those are, I guess, some of the basics. I mean, there is a whole slew of exotic, I'll call them exotic endorsements <laughs> that are out there that are really on a case-by-case
2: basis as things pop up. But those are sort of the, I'll call them the basics that that we look for. Jim, did you mention the Alta 9? You know, I was going to
3: mention the Alta 9. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. One other one I just want to mention for our New Jersey listeners on the loan side is we run into this often with out-of-state lawyers or lenders seeking a zoning endorsement. Or subdivision. Or subdivision, yes. They are, in many jurisdictions, a zoning endorsement or a subdivision endorsement might cost the borrower $50, $100. In New Jersey, it's extremely expensive. It's, it's, I believe, 20% of the overall
2: policy premium. Is that right, Josh? I think it's like 20%. I think the zoning is either 10 or 20, and subdivision is five or 10, but it's extremely expensive. And the wording of the endorsements on the New Jersey Alta form, again, in some states, I think it does add some value. So the wording of the endorsements in New Jersey, really, especially in the zoning endorsement, yeah. Only ensures that the zoning is X. It doesn't ensure compliance with the zoning. So, really, you can just go to the town's current code and look up the zoning. Right.
3: Yeah. So, we point that out for the New Jersey listeners because that is one that you should push back on every time. And we often, we almost always get the lenders, even the out of state lenders or out of state attorneys representing lenders, to agree once they look into it a little bit or have local council get involved. So a pointer there.
4: Great. Thank you. I have a question for you guys. Leasehold policies. I mean, leaseholds are becoming hot and particularly Bethany and I as litigators, we don't see a whole lot of litigation on leasehold policies, but it's an emerging area that this policy, you guys deal with that at all?
2: Yeah. Do you want to take that Josh? Sure. So I think I would agree it's emerging. It's, obviously much less common than your kind of -of run-of-the-mill owner's policies and lender's policies. My personal opinion, not based on anything other than guesses and kind of what I'm seeing, is that you're going to start seeing more of them as the values of some of these leaseholds really go through the roof, particularly, you know, kind of the, the developable space areas. But I think it's interesting because some of the big tenants, I'll just throw out in Amazon, for example. I mean, we don't represent Amazon, but we've done a ton of work leasing to them on behalf of our clients. They'll go through a full title review as if they're going to get a policy, but then they just don't. Or to my knowledge, they don't. I don't think they do. So I think that even if the issuance of the policy doesn't pick up, you're still going to be due diligence on the leasehold side as if they're going to be getting a policy. But I also do think that you'll see them pick up. I think from a logistical practical perspective, other than a few extra hoops as far as, the validity and enforceability of the lease documents themselves. I don't know that it ends up being practically that much different than an owner's policy. Right. And just to follow
3: up on that, I mean, when we talk about ground lease, we're talking about really the whole property. I mean, we really don't see many clients looking for leasehold policies when they're in a multi-tenanted building or property with other tenants. I don't think I've ever seen that. Yeah. I had one client recently, think they wanted that until i explained to them why you don't really do that and then they changed their mind not that i was trying to not get business for title companies but you know it just kind of save <laughs> the clients a few bucks too you know all
1: right last question i think guys craziest title story what do you got for us
3: all right i'll tell my story <laughs> we were doing title for i got two stories One is more anecdotal than anything, but we were representing a client purchasing an office building in Morristown, where we're located. We're at One Speedwell Avenue, Morristown, New Jersey, for those who don't know. It was a very complicated title, almost New York style with multi-layered, it was vertical title, where title below ground was different than title above ground, very complicated. And... There was reference entitled to a street, Water Street, that we know of the current Water Street, but it turned out it was what everyone was calling Old Water Street. Well, just to give you a sense of how old, Old Water Street was, our title agent, who was extremely careful and diligent, took a few trips down to the Morris County Courthouse himself to dig deep into the title of the property. In so doing, he came to our offices with binders of title and a map that he had found in the Morris County record, in the bowels of the Morris County Courthouse, identifying Old Water Street on a hand-drawn map that was prepared by a certain former general of the Continental Army who had a history of surveying in his background none other than george washington
1: george washington president of the united states george washington that
3: guy that <laughs> guy who knew he was into title and survey um, before he got into politics sure.
4: <laughs> yeah. were there any cherry
1: trees on the property
3: not after he got there
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that george washington was a title nerd i mean that's yeah. just... <laughs> he,
3: he was the first apparently he was the father of title nerds.
1: But not the last.
3: <laughs> but not the last, exactly. And now I'll just tell one other quick story, and this is bringing a little bit more to the modern era. You know, we had a situation where we were representing a client buying industrial property, very, very sophisticated deal, a high price point, had a very challenging access issue where the only access to the property was an easement over a neighboring property followed by a railroad crossing controlled by conrail and we were dealing with a title company from day one i won't say it was quite at the 11th hour but i'll say at the 10th hour that title company became very very nervous about our access issues and began throwing a lot of new exceptions on title much to our chagrin our backs were kind of against the wall at this point. We had no choice but to turn our attentions to a different title company, title agency that we work with quite frequently, who were very nimble, very eager to get the transaction and work with us and bent over backward and really in 24 to 48 hours were able to get us to a comfort level that we could live with and that they could live with. And they ultimately got the deal. I only bring that up because you know in New Jersey unlike some other states and uh, as many of you know title costs are regulated so you can't really differentiate one title company from the other based on cost but you certainly can based on service and that was an example of the service of the highest degree and they ultimately got the transaction and a very 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 substantial premium as a result
2: I would I guess just piggyback on what Jim said about in an industry, especially where you can't compete on price, the service is really, I think, what differentiates one title agent from another. From an attorney's perspective, make my job easier. And it's little things sometimes. You know, there are still title agents out there who, when you order a title commitment, just send you all the pages and you get a, a block of pages, and it's up to you to then go through and Separate them and other ones go through and tab it for you. And now it all comes through on PDF and the PDFs are tabbed and you can go through and click the links and it makes it like much easier. And there's little things like that, that, an attorney, when you're deciding kind of who, to the extent that you have many authority, little things like that, that can make a difference.
4: And I have one last question for our experts, and I think they sort of foreshadowed this a little bit in their answers to your question. And it's true, Prong. What is the single best thing a title agent can do for you? And what is the single best thing you can do for the title agent in closing a transaction?
2: I'll go ahead first, I guess. Jim got to go first most times, so I'll go first this time. And like I said, I, I think it is, like I said before, it's just making my life easier. Make my life administratively easier. Be responsive. And certainly don't do what happened to Jim. Change your mind at the last second. And then as far as what I can do for title agents, I think it's just keeping them apprised of what's going on in the transaction. Well, I'll give you an example. I'm closing on Friday a refinance for a portfolio of nine multifamily properties. And it's nine individual loans. And so I called the title agent last Wednesday, because these have been in the hopper in the works for a couple months now, and said, just so you know, I'm not sure if they updated you, we're closing what was would have been nine days or after, you, you know, nine days notice. And she was really appreciative because she said, she can't tell me how many times somebody calls her on a Wednesday and says we're closing something like that this Friday, two days notice. And it's a lot of paperwork. And, you know, the good agents, like I said before, they help drive the closing process, but they're still human and they still need to, you know, line up documents and make sure the logistical capacity to handle those. So keeping them apprised of the process, I think, forms a very good partnership.
3: I agree with everything. Josh just said, I'll just add to it in terms of what they could do for us.
2: I would say creativity
3: is a big one, and it may seem obvious, but it's not. Fortunately, unfortunately, listen, everyone's busy these days. Commercial real estate market is just very crazy busy between, you know, post pandemic rebounding, whether it's because of concerns over changes in the tax laws next year, and, and everyone's busy. But the last thing that I want in a transaction is someone who gives me perfunctory responses because they're too busy or they you know, don't really have the bandwidth or really the interest in working with you. But when you get someone who's a title agent or an underwriter who, when faced with a thorny issue, is willing to think outside the box and help you craft a creative response or solution to that problem, it's worth its weight in gold. And then, conversely, what kind of the same thing as what Josh was talking about is, you know, keeping them in the loop, checking in and being sensitive to their time. So as what Josh is saying, you know, don't just assume because your adversary wants to close next Tuesday and you can do it next Tuesday that the title company can do it next Tuesday. Check with them. Listen, everyone wants to close as quickly as possible but it doesn't do anybody any good if you find out that that title company is also doing 10 other closings that day. There's a real good chance something's going to slip through the cracks on your deal. If you could wait another day and close on Wednesday instead of Tuesday, well, that's probably to your advantage as well. So, you know, mutual respect in that regard is a useful thing to keep in mind. Great.
1: Great. Thank you guys so much. I think that's probably all we have for you this afternoon, but thank you. I will say you're the first of our guests to have a story involving George Washington. So I think that's pretty cool.
3: <laughs> Great. But
1: thank you both for joining us.
3: Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Ken Burns has nothing on us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our next
4: guest is our newest member of our title team, Kevin Hackinson. Kevin just joined us in September, I believe. Is that right, Kevin?
5: Uh, it was actually in August. I came, came a little yeah. bit earlier
4: And in addition to be our newest member, Kevin is also a brand new father. So
5: we're excited to
4: have him. And obviously, we give him congratulations on the important stuff. Now, Kevin, you have an interesting case for us to talk about. AMRAM Properties v. Fidelity National out of the Northern District of Illinois. And I just know one of the beginning, on the background, the beginning sentences: Patrick Kavanaugh, a member manager of Chicago PC. LLC approached several prospective investors who lived outside of the United States with a business opportunity to acquire housing properties in Chicago and lease them to tenants who were eligible for federal rental assistance under Section 8 of the Housing Act of 1937. If that doesn't sound like a precursor for a fraudulent deal, I'm not sure what does. But why don't you tell us about the facts, sort of, of this case? And what happened,
5: please? Yeah, and I think that you're onto something there, they, and it's probably not a coincidence that the, that the court started the opinion that way, right? So yeah, Chicago PC had approached these investors about purchasing some properties, and as part of this, they also assisted these investors in setting up LLCs specifically for the purpose of completing the purchases. And so what they did is they had an attorney named uh, Alex Ogoke, who helped them set up the LLCs and then complete the purchases. What Chicago PC didn't tell these new LLC members is that they were essentially doing a you know, double buy, if you will, where Chicago PC was completing the purchase themselves and then immediately completing the sale over to these LLCs. I believe it said even on, you know, on the same day. So again, is there anything necessarily wrong with that? Maybe, maybe not. But I think to your point earlier, it does sort of add to the sort of uneasy feeling you get about some of these transactions. What happened after the purchases seemed, from what I gathered, was what was most troubling for these LLCs because after they completed the purchases and the LLCs had these properties in their possession, Chicago PC told them that They were going to guarantee the rental income for these properties, and they were going to assure management of the properties. Those promises did not come to pass, where I believe there were some issues with the rental income certain months. They did not upkeep the properties as they had supposedly promised. And by the time these LLC members, who I believe it said were all not citizens of the United States, actually came to the country to inspect the properties, they found that they were in large part in disrepair and basically not in the state that they expected them to be in.
4: Wasn't there also a fraudulent power of attorney? I think the Chicago PC guy actually completed the sales to the investors via fraudulent power of attorney,
5: correct? Thanks for bringing that up too. Yes. Mr. Agoke, who I mentioned was working for Chicago PC, he seemed to have a lot going on in this transaction where he helped set up the LLCs. He was a, an agent for Chicago PC. And yes, there was a fraudulent power of attorney for him, I believe. I don't recall on behalf of which party, but yes, there was a fraudulent power of attorney document in there as well to add on to all the other issues that the LLC. Had.
4: It was on behalf
5: of the investors
4: because that's sure. how the investors got title. But the other thing is this is Fidelity National Title's motion to dismiss. So why don't you tell us about, and it's a motion to dismiss the conspiracy and the fraud claims. So why don't you tell us about Fidelity National Title's role in this real estate transaction?
5: Sure. So Fidelity was the title and escrow agent as part of this transaction. And what they did, it seemed like from what they talked about in the case is their primary role, at least as far as the court was concerned, was as the escrow agent. They set up double escrow accounts for each of the transactions to the different LLCs, presumably because there were these sort of back-to-back purchases going on. Fidelity did not inform the plaintiffs, and when I say the plaintiffs, those are the LLCs, they didn't inform the plaintiffs that they were using these double escrow accounts or that Chicago PC was doing this buy and resell on the same day. Another point of contention as part of this whole process is that Fidelity had done quite a bit of work with Mr. Agoke, the attorney for Chicago PC. And as part of the process, somebody who worked for Fidelity, a salesperson who worked for Fidelity actually wrote a letter to the plaintiff saying, we've worked with Chicago PC for a number of years. Our title company, Fidelity, has handled escrow closings and escrow accounts for Chicago PC over the last four years.
4: All right. Now, we're at the point where the court rules, Kevin. Have the court rule on Fidelity's motion to dismiss.
5: Sure. So, to reiterate something you said a, a moment ago, Mike, the counts that The plaintiffs brought, in this case, they brought an aiding and abetting fraud claim against Fidelity, basically for aiding and abetting Chicago PC's quote-unquote fraudulent real estate investment scheme, failing to prevent Chicago PC and Agoke from making false statements, failing to discover the aforementioned power of attorney document that was forged. And then it also said just for performing and closing the escrow services for them. Then they also brought court claims for negligent misrepresentation and negligence. And the court dismissed all of those claims, but they did leave open the ability for the plaintiffs to re-plead the aiding and abetting fraud claims.
4: What was the logic behind the dismissals, particularly the misrepresentation? And then fill us in a little bit on the fraud as well.
5: Sure. To start with the negligent misrepresentation and negligence claims, I think plain and simple, the court found that the plaintiffs had not pled the elements of either of those claims. They first pointed out that the Illinois rule for negligence, the misrepresentation and negligence was that you could not recover in tort solely for economic loss uh, based on properties that you bought. There are a couple of exceptions to that rule, which plaintiffs claimed that they fit within and the court essentially rejected both of those contentions. They basically said, no, you do not fit within either of these exceptions. As for the aiding and abetting fraud claims, again, as I had mentioned, they dismissed those claims, but this dismissed them without prejudice, giving the plaintiffs a, an opportunity to replead. From what I gathered there, the crux of their reasoning was that Fidelity had basically posited an argument that this was not traditional fraud, this was something called promissory fraud which is a form of fraud based upon a representation of intent concerning future conduct. The plaintiffs did not respond to that argument, and the court seemed to basically take that as a waiver by the plaintiffs admitting that, yes, this is promissory fraud. But the court also pointed out that, okay, by not responding to this, you're basically waiving and admitting that this was the type of fraud but also are pointing out that you have not responded to any of those allegations. So they left open the opportunity to re and respond to the LD's response there. They didn't spend a whole lot of time on their reasoning as to why or why not they were dismissing these claims with, with or without prejudice. Just from my reading of the case, I sort of gathered that the court felt that these plaintiffs had somewhat of a you know, had a stronger argument as to the aiding and abetting fraud and were leaving them open some leeway to properly in the court's mind to replead that. And I think they just did not take these negligent misrepresentation or negligence claims uh, particularly seriously.
4: I hear what you're saying and I read the case too and I think the handwriting is kind of on the wall. I think the court was given one last chance. Cause I Kevin, I thought what was significant in this case is and misrepresentations, they listed four. Failing to disclose Okoway's power of attorney documents, granting him authority act were forged. Failing to disclose they were back-to-back property transactions using double escrow's, misrepresenting the accuracy of the settlement statements, and affirming that Chicago, BC, and Okaway were reputable. And finally got a like half a million dollars for escrow services. Even with that, the court found. None of these statements is a false material fact. Fidelity didn't know about the forgeries. There's nothing wrong with double escrow transactions as long as the escrow agent is not involved in any type of fraudulent activity, and they pled nothing to show that. And also with regard to saying that Chicago PC and Oka Repertal, the court, what they told you was they had a relationship of doing some services for four years. That's it. That's not enough even to set forth negligent misrepresentation negligence, and it was dismissed with prejudice. I think the court gave him one more chance, but to maybe work that in. But I think at the end of the day, I think Fidelity national title
5: is in in good shape.
4: All right. Anything else you want to add, Kevin? I don't have any more questions for you.
5: No, I don't think so. I thought this was an interesting case. And Myself, somebody who is recently out of law school, I saw a lot of my civil procedure in action here. It's always nice to get out into the the real world practice of law and see some of what I've been reading. Anthony, do you have anything?
1: No, I don't. That was great. Thank you, Kevin.
4: I think that's a wrap. Thank you all.
0: Thank you for listening today to Title Nerds presented by Riker Danzig. If you like this show, please remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast app and be sure to rate us five stars. You may also wish to subscribe to our blog and visit our website at Riker.com. We hope you will join us again for another episode of Title Nerds.